0: To hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Reverend Eric Alexander. That may be
1: helpful for me to remind you a little of the general theme of the second half of Isaiah, uh, and then about the general structure of this part of Isaiah. The general theme of uh, chapters 40 to 66, you'll remember, we found Isaiah naturally divides into two parts, 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. And the general theme of this second half of the prophecy is the salvation that God is going to bring to his people. In chapters 1 to 39, he has been in controversy with his people because they are ignoring his voice and turning to put their confidence in human alliances and in other powers and refusing to put their trust in the Lord. They have rebelled against Him. They have turned from Him. And God begins to set before them the real outcome of such a life, of such rebellion, and that is that they will come under His displeasure, that they will experience what it is, to find his judgment catching up with them. And that historically did happen, of course, in the exile when the people of God were carried off into Babylon. And chapters 40 to 66 are Isaiah's message into that situation. So he is looking far ahead into the time far outside of the period in which Isaiah himself lived, which was the 8th century B.C., to this period in the 6th century B.C. and towards its end, when God would come and bring his people back out of the land of Babylon, when there would be, if you like, a second exodus. you remember how at the first exodus, God came down and looked upon his people and had compassion upon them and provided a deliverer. And the deliverer who was Moses led them out of the bondage of Egypt and across the Red Sea and into the place of God's promise. Now, what Isaiah is telling them about in this second half of the prophecy is the glory of God's second exodus as he will bring them out of the land of Babylon and release them from the bondage that they had experienced there. Now he is going to do that by raising up a deliverer. And the deliverer is someone called Cyrus, who is referred to, in fact, in this chapter that we read this evening. Did you notice in verse 11 he says, "'From the east I summon a bird of prey,' from a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. And that, of course, was Cyrus, the Persian king, who was going to be the instrument in God's hand to release his people out of Babylon and bring them back, as they did come back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, to their own land and to the city of Jerusalem. So he is going to speak to them about how This man, Cyrus, is going to be, in a mysterious sense, God's servant. And we've been reading in this second half of Isaiah about how God speaks of my servant, Cyrus. King Cyrus of Persia, the servant of God. A most remarkable thing. It does not seem very difficult when you read Isaiah to realize that people like Saddam Hussein are also capable of becoming the servant of the same God. He is able to take the heathen monarch and make him his servant. So he looks forward to these days and describes to them how Babylon is to fall and how Cyrus will be God's instrument in leading his people out of Babylon. But there's another strand. You have noticed how prophecy has often got uh, several different layers to it. Or as I've suggested to you sometimes, uh, if you were a mountaineer it's like standing on a mountain and seeing several distances ahead of you. The immediate prospect the middle distance, and then the ultimate view that you get of a great horizon in the far distance. Now, the prophets frequently speak in these three dimensions. They address their own times. They speak about the immediate future and what is to happen then, and then they speak about the long-distance future. Now, as he speaks about this whole concept of God's salvation going to come by the servant Jehovah will call, he speaks about a third exodus. There is the exodus out of the land of Egypt. There is the exodus out of the land of Babylon. And then he begins to speak about the one who is the servant par excellence, the one who will be the suffering servant of Jehovah who will lead his people not out of Egypt or Babylon, but out of the kingdom of darkness and out of the bondage of Satan. And this servant of Jehovah is the one who permeates this whole section of uh, Isaiah. We have noticed in that context that there are several servant songs, therefore four in number, in the second half of Isaiah, and they refer in their deepest understanding to him who is Jehovah's servant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to its great climax, of course, in chapter 52 and 53. So the theme is salvation, The salvation God is going to bring to his people and the way he is going to do it is through Jehovah's servant. The structure of these chapters now is fairly straightforward and I think most people are agreed. That usually, anybody who says most people are agreed usually means most people who are agreed with me are agreed. But most people, most sensible people are agreed that uh, Isaiah 40-66 to really consists of three groups of nine chapters. And you can see them. The first nine ends at the end of chapter 48, and the second nine ends at the end of chapter 57. And they end with the same refrain. Chapter 48 uh, at the end finishes with the refrain, There is no peace saith the Lord for the wicked. Chapter 57 verse 21 has the same refrain, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So you get this refrain that comes in the end of chapter 48 and the end of chapter 57. The theme of these three sections is first 40 to the end of 48, the deliverance of God's people, the second exodus as it were under Cyrus. Secondly, verses uh, chapters 49 to 57, the suffering servant as the deliverer. And then the last section from chapter 59 to 66, the uh, 58 to 66, the glory of God revealed in his deliverance. So that's the general structure, all structural divisions of uh, these chapters are in some sense unsatisfactory and, and personal and in one way artificial, but it may help you to see them as a group of three lots of nine chapters each. So this evening we turn to chapter 46, And immediately we are confronted with one of Isaiah's favorite themes, as you would have noticed if you've been following through with us, and that is the unique glory of God as the only Savior and the folly of trusting in idols. Why God will ultimately be victorious over his enemies is that he alone is the sovereign Lord and the only Savior, and there is none beside him. So Isaiah stands in the midst of a generation which had confusion about the nature of God, and he says in verse 5, God speaks through him, To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me, that we may be compared? And he answers his own question in verse uh, 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now that uniqueness of God, he is not only a Savior, he is the only Savior. And that is something that Isaiah is preaching to the nations as well as to Judah. Judah needs it because they were tempted frequently to go after other gods, to put their confidence in idols. But Isaiah is preaching it to the nations of the world. There is one God, there is none like him, and he is alone is the Savior. We greatly need that in uh, this generation. There is a uniqueness about God and a uniqueness about his salvation which the Bible from beginning to end insists upon. Now right at the beginning of chapter 46 we are introduced to two of these idols, which it was clearly the intention of the Babylonians to persuade the people of God to accept and put alongside the God whom they had learned to trust and of whom they had been taught by people like Isaiah. And here are these two gods. Bel is the name of the first one, and Nebo is the name of the other. And when Isaiah introduces us to them, they are both in a state of collapse. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops low. Now, Bel and Nebo are two of the most prominent gods of the Babylonians. You will probably recognize their names if you think of the time when Daniel and his friends were carried off into Babylon. Do you remember how they changed Daniel's name and the name of his three companions? Now, we've often noticed that people who came from amongst God's people bore in their names the sign that they belonged to God. Daniel bore in his name the name of God, which in the Old Testament one of these names is El. And each of his companions bore the name of God in their name. It had, as it were, been written in to their name. Now, when the pressures of a godless society began to operate in their lives, that society wanted to obscure the distinctiveness of these men's background. And so Daniel was given a new name. Do you remember what it was? Belteshazzar now the name Daniel of course as you will know meant God is my judge Belteshazzar means Bel protects him so in the name that he was given here is this first Babylonian God already subtly introduced to Daniel's life in the form of his name. One of his uh, companions, Azariah, who had the name that had Jehovah in it, you know. Azariah, the I-A-H is an abbreviation of Jehovah. And Azariah means Jehovah helps. Now his name was changed to Abednego. And the Nego is really a corruption of Nebo. And his name was changed to add the second of these two gods into his name. Now, the point about all that was that here, Bel and Nebo were to be quietly replacing Jehovah in the lives of these men. Or certainly being brought in alongside them. And uh, Isaiah pictures Bel and Nebo, the two principal gods of Babylon. And as he pictures them, they are tottering and collapsing on the ground because they have two features. The first is that they are a burden to be borne. Now here's a very significant thing about this pagan religion. They are a burden to be borne. Now you really need to grasp that. It's one of the distinctive things about a dead religion. It is a burden that people carry. And the second thing is they are helpless to save. Now look at how Isaiah pictures that. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. They are tottering, as it were, to the ground. Their idols, that is their images, are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together unable to rescue the burden, they themselves go off into captivity. So there's the second problem about this dead religion. In the first place, it is a burden to be borne. In the second place, they are incapable of saving. There is no salvation in this dead religion. Now, it's a really important thing for us to see the contrast that there is here between these dead figures of Baal and Nebo, and you will remember, won't you, that a man's God is whatever is first in his life. So don't let's imagine these are these rather primitive pagan idol worshippers, you know. And it's amusing for us in the 20th century to stand back and observe them, these people who worshipped idols, because somebody's idol, somebody's God is whatever is first in their life. That's the definition of an idol and of God. The person you worship. The one who is first in your life. What you live for. Now notice the contrast. What God says of himself in verses 3 and 4 is this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All you who remain of the house of Israel. That, of course, is a reference to the fact that the people of God had been reduced greatly in number over a long period of time until there was what the Bible calls a remnant left. All you who remain of the house of Israel. You, now notice the contrast between the living God and these dead figures. You whom I have upheld since you were conceived. And have carried since your birth. Even to your old age and grey hairs I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue or save you. Now there is the great distinction between a dead religion and a living religion. The dead religion is a burden to carry and it cannot save. And a living religion is a relationship with the living God who from before your birth until the end of your life upholds and sustains you and delivers and saves you. Now, George Adam Smith, one of the great commentators from last century on Isaiah, says the great question that needs to be asked is this. Is your religion something you have to carry? Or does it carry you? That's the question. Now we need to apply that to ourselves. Because, you see, there is... Not only the kind of works religion that we ourselves here this evening would recognize as being a false religion and something that was uh, not uh, in any sense part of our thinking, but... It's not only a reference to that heavy burden that the Pharisees laid upon people that they had to bear. And Jesus said to them, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because, of course, this works religion is something that is a weight that you have to carry around with you all your life. The religion of grace is a religion that bears you and carries you and sustains you. But... There is a form of evangelical religion which can degenerate into an outward lifeless performance that has to be carried or carried off, or whatever we might say of it. Do you know the kind of thing? It is possible for us to have the form of godliness which denies the power of godliness so that we are carrying something rather than being carried by the living God at work personally in our own lives and bearing us as on eagles' wings so that our youth is renewed as the eagles and we walk and are not faint. Now, there's a difference between these two kinds of life. And we greatly need to recognize what God is saying to us here. He is saying that true knowledge of God and a true relationship with Jehovah means that you're carried rather than that you yourself carry this immense burden of trying to keep up a form of godliness without the power of it. Now you notice the contrast which highlights for us the character of God from verse 4. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, verse 3, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you. Now there is the first great distinction between God and the dead idols. God is the creator. I have made you, he says. And here is the second thing. I will sustain you. He is the sustainer of his people as well as the creator of his people. And I will redeem you. The end of verse 4. I will sustain you and I will rescue you, the NIV says. Now, by contrast, the gods of Babylon are man-made. Verse 6. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. Now, that's an important thing, you know. The God of the Bible is a God who has created his people. But there are people who create God. And it's a great temptation for us. This is one of the great reasons that it's so vital to be absolutely 100% committed to the biblical revelation in Scripture of God. It's amazing the number of evangelical Christians who have said to me, Now, I like to think of God like this. Or I don't like to think of God like that. I read this in the Bible, I don't like to think of God like that. I'd rather think of God this way. Or when I think of God, the most helpful thing to me is to think of him like this. And I always say, well, that's great. Provided it comes directly out of the word of God because we can be in danger of making God in our own image, you see. And that's what they did. They made a God to suit them. The God who would not be overzealous about morals, for example. And they made him In their own images, one cynic said God made man in his image and man has been returning the compliment ever since. And it's true. It really is. But you see, these gods of Babylon are man-made. The second thing is, they are dependent. Verse 7 notice they lift it to their shoulders and carry it they set it up in its place and there it stands from that spot it cannot move and because it is dead and dependent it is apparently deaf or dumb or both though one cries out to it it does not answer and finally it is powerless to save it cannot save him from his troubles. Now that is the nature of every substitute for the living God of the Bible. They are man-made. They are dependent. They are dead and powerless to save. Now in verse 8, God urges them to remember the vanity of worshipping any other God than Jehovah. Remember this, fix it in your mind, take it to heart, you rebels, because they have been rebelling against the Lord. The evidence of that has been that they did not trust him. Even when they got to Babylon, many of them compromised with the gods of the nation to which they had been exiled. And God says, remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to your heart, you rebels. And then he begins to tell them five things about himself. I've just time to mention them to you this evening and you will notice that they really gather together many of the things that the first half of the chapter says from verse 8 and 9. First of all, he reminds them and urges them to take to their heart the absolute uniqueness of God. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So the absolute uniqueness of God That is the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His absolute uniqueness is a primary part of the biblical revelation of God. Second thing is his absolute lordship over history. Notice verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Now that's the second great emphasis about God. He is the absolute Lord over the whole of history. Whatever he plans and pleases, he does. And from ancient times, He knows the end from the beginning. And that's one of the great central truths of the whole revelation of Scripture about God, that He is the sovereign Lord over the whole of history as it develops. And that brings a new dimension, you see, into His people's lives. It means that at every stage of the history of the world we are able to recognize that it is the Lord who is king. It is he who is in sovereign control of all the developments of history. And that means that the people of God will never become frightened lest something happens to put the world out of control because it is in the control of God as the sovereign Lord of history. That does not mean that he approves of everything that men do but it does mean that ultimately he is going to work all things together for good those who love him and there is nothing excluded from that now that's an essential central stabilizer for the life and thinking of God's people moreover the third thing that he reveals at the beginning of verse 11 is his unlimited sovereignty over the nations now One of the reasons this was so important for Israel and Judah was that there was a suspicion outside of the land of Israel and Judah, and sometimes inside it, that God was the sovereign Lord over the territory in which his own people lived, and that he was sovereign over their lives and their affairs, but there was another God who was in control of the neighboring territory and so on. That was the common way to think in their time. And you know, there's an element of that that creeps into contemporary thinking. It's all very well for us, you see, in Britain or in the West to serve God and hold to uh, Christian revelation and to a Christian understanding of God, but everybody else in the world has their own way of thinking about God. Now what Isaiah is saying to us is that God is the sovereign Lord of the entire world. And that's why he is able to reach out to the East and pluck up a pagan king and make him the instrument of his purpose on behalf of his own people. Now what was happening in history then would have read interestingly in the newspapers that Persia was attacking Babylon and that the people of God in in Babylon were coming back out of that country. They had been released because of what had happened in Babylon. But of course what was really happening was that God was raising up Cyrus the king of Persia as my servant and he was using him for the sake of his own people and that gives you not only the sovereignty of God over history but the real key to history because the real key to all history is what God is doing with his own people That's what lies behind the scenes, as it were. When all the scaffolding is taken down, behind the scenes there will be God's work creating a people for himself and for his glory. And they are the key to what is happening in the world. The world does not know that and would scoff at the idea but God's unlimited sovereignty over the nations is really ultimately on behalf of his own people. So there is the absolute uniqueness of God, his absolute lordship over history, his unlimited sovereignty over all the nations, not as fourthly, his precise faithfulness to his own word. What I have said the end of verse 411 What I have said that will I bring about what I have planned that will I do Now what God has planned he does what God says he performs and there is a precise correlation between the word of God and what he brings to pass he never utters an idle word. What I have said, that I will bring about. So he says, listen to me, verse 12, you who are stubborn in heart, you who are far from righteousness. Then in verse 13, you get the fifth keynote, and it is the sovereign grace of God in salvation. I am bringing my righteousness near. Notice, those to whom he is is speaking are far from righteousness. But God says in verse 13, I am bringing my own righteousness near. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. Now, don't miss the importance of this. I will grant salvation to Zion. In other words, the sovereign God who is Lord of history, sovereign over the nations and absolutely faithful in his word. What he says is, that he will bring salvation to his people in his sovereign grace. I will grant it to Zion. Now it's a surprising thing. It is indeed an amazing thing when you think that he is addressing those who are rebels against him in verse 8, stubborn-hearted in verse 12, far from righteousness at the end of verse 12. But he says, I will grant salvation to them. More than that, I will grant my glory to Israel. Now that, of course, is something that was fulfilled when God in his mercy brought his people up out of Babylon. But that fulfillment was only a shadow of the salvation by grace which he brought to us in the one who is his ultimate servant, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him he bestowed his glory upon his people. Rebels, transgressors, far from righteousness though they might be, The sovereign God is above everything else, sovereign in his grace and in the way he bestows upon us the riches of his salvation. Let us pray together. Our blessed Lord, we bow before you to acknowledge that you are the sovereign Lord of time and space, the sovereign Lord over all the affairs of men and nations, and in bringing salvation to your people, you are the sovereign Savior. We come to you this evening and glory in that amazing grace with which you have dealt with us, and we worship you and glory in you. In these coming weeks, reveal to us, we pray, something of the mysterious wonder of your salvation. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory and praise, now and forever. Amen.
0: You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601 or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and hear the Word of God.